This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, July 28, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. I drink a lot of fair trade coffee, and like many coffee drinkers, we tend to view the product as broadly superior, and it also helps lower-income farmers. But do the economics of those transactions bear out that typical conclusion? Victor Klar is an economist at Florida Gulf Coast University. We spoke last month. Whenever I have seen the fair trade label on coffee products that I've purchased, I drink a lot of coffee, uh, I have taken that to mean, well, whatever the benefits are to low-income people around the world, uh, this is probably better coffee. Yeah, a lot of fair trade coffee really is spectacular. In fact, even though my short monograph about it that I wrote for the Acton Institute is, is critical as a consumer in terms of what it's doing and how it's doing it, equal exchanges, organic love buzz is tremendous. So it's a fair trade coffee that I drink, not because it has the fair trade label on it, because it's outstanding. In fact, it's so good. It's one of these coffees that it can be previously ground and packaged that way. And it's still a really, really great coffee. But I don't buy it because of the label. I buy it and drink it because it's fantastic. Well, right. And that's the that's another thing is that if I if I see coffee that's pre-ground, I'm less likely to buy it just because, well, it's pre-ground. <laughs> that's right. Me too. But in the case of organic love buzz from Equal Exchange, it's a fair trade coffee that's great even pre-ground. <laughs> More broadly, though, what are your findings about uh, the quality of fair trade coffee and the degree to which many people buy fair trade coffee. They do so because they want to help uh, these low income people around the world. How much good does that actually do? Yeah. So when you see that fair trade label, it guarantees you some basic things about how the coffee's grown, that coffee growers are members of democratically governed cooperatives of small scale growers. The, there's no child labor that's used in the production of that coffee. Everybody gets the local minimum wage. None, none of the coffees are grown in protected rainforest. And the one that most people are familiar with is regardless of what happens to the market price of coffee, the growers get a guaranteed minimum price per pound, as well as an additional 10 or 15 cents that the Fair Trade Network refers to as the social premium. So even if the market price of coffee is high, and all the coffee, fair trade or not, is sold at the market price. Every pound that's sold as part of the fair trade network is there's an extra 10 or 15 cents. And growers use that for projects in their village, like clean drinking water, or education, those sorts of things. <laughs> all, all that sounds pretty good. It does sound really, really good. Um, I think one of the downsides is that there's simply not a sufficient demand for fair trade labeled coffee to buy up all of the coffee that's produced by these cooperatives of small coffee growers. In fact, enthusiastic fans of fair trade will openly tell you that in a typical growing season, only about a third or so of the coffee that's produced by certified fair trade growers is actually marketed and sold as fair trade. So if you drank a cup of coffee this morning, whether it was labeled fair trade or not, Chances are excellent that it was grown by fair trade coffee growers, but it was part of the other two-thirds that isn't picked up in the fair trade network. Which brings up another interesting thing that a lot of people don't know. It's really difficult to join the fair trade coffee growing network in the first place. If you're a cooperative of, of small coffee growers, you have to file an application. 
and there's a pretty hefty application fee. Currently, the application fee is a little over 500 euros. And this seems counterintuitive. If you think that the idea behind fair trade coffee is to enrich desperately poor coffee growers, it seems counterintuitive to ask them to pony up 500 euros or so at the front end. And then the payments don't stop after that. All of those guarantees, all of those assurances that you get from the label, Fair Trade International has to operate its own certifying agency that goes in and does monitoring and compliance checks with the coffee growers. But that's not funded through our purchases of coffee. That money's paid by the growers themselves. And depending on the scale of the enterprise and which year they're in, that annual fee could be somewhere between 1,000 euros and 4,000 euros. And again, this seems a little counterintuitive that you're asking desperately poor people to pony up annually something bigger than $1,000 and something less than about $4,000 because the euro and the dollar are about one for one right now. We have enough years of evidence now that it seems to suggest that coffee growers aren't really moving ahead significantly, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is that fair trade coffee importers and wholesalers, they import fair trade coffee when it's profitable for them to do so. The importers and wholesalers aren't charities. Fair Trade International is organized as a not-for-profit, but the individual companies like Equal Exchange, who buy the coffee, they're not in it as a charity, so they'll buy Fair Trade coffee, but they'll only buy it when it's profitable for them to do so. So there are some strange distributional impacts. One is, if you're really trying to help the poorest coffee growers, you should buy coffee from the poorest coffee growers. And that would include places like Tanzania. I don't know if you've had it, but Tanzanian pea berry is fantastic. <laughs> it's delicious, aromatic coffee. And the annual per capita income in Tanzania right now is about $1,000. Peru's doing pretty well by global standards. They're not rich, but their per capita income is about 6000 bucks a year. Now, if you had a preferential option for the poor, you would want to buy that Tanzanian coffee because you'll do more good with coffee growers who are much poorer than in places like Peru. But American importers and wholesalers, they buy coffees that they know are good and that aren't too costly to bring into the country. So in a typical year, fair trade coffee sources about 25% of its beans from a nation like Peru, where again, annual income is about 6,000 bucks. Something less than 5% of fair trade coffee comes from those Tanzanian pea berry coffee growers who are much poorer by global standards. So the fair trade network cares for the poor to the extent that it's profitable to care for the poor. Now, is part of that just that a country like Peru is more likely to have infrastructure and uh, people who are better at dealing with international shippers? Is that is it the uh, sort of the the assurance that they have that dealing with a country like Peru is just going to be better for their margins than dealing with a country like Tanzania. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. There are already existing coffee growers who have been proved to be excellent growers of great coffees and so the supply chain is more reliable, the there's less uncertainty for the importer and the wholesaler. And it's also less expensive to bring in coffee from a place like Peru than it is from some faraway nation in Africa like Tanzania. What about a country like Vietnam? Vietnam produces is, a lot of coffee. Yeah, Vietnam's a really interesting case. Vietnam in the 1980s really didn't grow a significant amount of coffee. Uh, 
But then there were a couple of bad weather episodes in South America in 94 and in 97. And that drove the world price of coffee sky high because there wasn't much of it to go around. And it was in the late 90s and early 2000s that Vietnam leaped onto the scene, quit doing whatever they were doing before they were growing coffee, and started to grow massive quantities. Now, because of the latitude range, they don't grow the very best beans in Vietnam. They tend to grow more robustas than arabicas. Arabicas are the ones that have a really mellow flavor. It takes three to five years for them to be ready for the harvest, and you can only grow them at high elevations. So you, those are the coffees we get from places like Brazil and Colombia. But once those coffee prices spiked in the 90s, Vietnam started to grow a mountain of coffee, so much so that even though it wasn't a major player before the 90s, by the time the 2000s ended, they were in the top five coffee-growing nations in the world because they had leapt in and they grew a lot grew a lot of robustas, which were a value-priced option when co other coffee prices, like prices for Arabicas, were so high. And I can imagine that given the fact that the coffee coming out of Vietnam is not the best, it gets ground, it gets put in giant tins, or it gets put into K-cups. Yeah, that's exactly right. Robustas really got moving when they were used for instant coffees that were put into GI mess kits whenever they battled overseas. And so robust is just like the name sounds, they're robust. They're resistant to bad weather, they're resistant to infections, fungi, and they have a lot more caffeine, but you're right, they have a bitter flavor and so often they're used for instant coffees or for blended coffees. So if you, you can lower your production costs if you've got Arabicas by including some Robustas in the mix, just not too many Robustas. Well, given all that, what should people read into that label, that fair trade label, if anything? What can they say, what can they say with confidence about the value of that label? And are there competing labels that project more information? Yeah. Uh, economists have thought about this a lot, and one of the reasons that I might buy fair trade coffee, even if I know what's going on behind the scenes, right? even if I know that the emperor has no clothes, so to speak, I might be buy fair trade coffee because if I go to class with a fair trade coffee mug and my students see the equal exchange logo or the fair trade label, they might think, oh, Clark is a great guy. Clark cares. And that might pay off for me in terms of a more manageable class, more productive, enjoyable time together with my students. They might rate me higher at the end of the academic term, and they might even give me a higher rating on ratemyprofessors.com. And if I have friends or family over, it might be value for, valuable for me to show off the fair trade label and make sure that they see it on my kitchen counter when they come in so that they know that I'm a good guy. This is what economists refer to as social capital that I'm building and investing in a future relationship. And one of the ways that I can do that is do virtue signaling by paying a little extra for coffee and making sure that everybody knows that I do it. But it's also true that to the extent that fair trade works, it really depends on the marketing and information that I get or don't get from Fair Trade International. It's really difficult for me to observe directly what's going on with the coffee growers that I'm trying to help. And one thing a lot of people don't know about fair trade coffee is that even if your application is accepted and you've paid the 500 or so euros to join the network, there's no guarantee that any importer or wholesaler will buy your coffee. It's like a hunting license. You have the opportunity to participate in the network once you're accepted, but there's no guarantee somebody will buy your coffee under the conditions that are stipulated in fair trade. In fact, in one notorious case, 
a cooperative of Mexican coffee growers in Oaxaca looked for eight years for a willing importer on the other side of the market. There is also no guarantee that even once you found a buyer, they have to take all of the coffee off of your hands at the guaranteed minimum price. Again, in a typical year, only about one-third of all the coffee grown by fair trade growers is actually purchased and marketed and sold as fair trade coffee. And so to the extent that you don't have a guarantee that it's going to be purchased and you've engaged in a lot of upfront investment, there are a lot of growers who probably decide it's not worth it, despite the fact that they're growing excellent coffee. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's very costly to join the network, and it's the growers who have to shoulder those monitoring and compliance costs. And there's some great empirical research now that we've been doing fair trade coffee and other fair trade commodities for decades now. And in one landmark study, um, some researchers in Germany did a before and after comparison over a 10-year window. They looked at conventional coffee growers. And they looked at fair trade coffee growers located in the same region. So it's a natural experiment. The weather's the same, the rain is the same, the sun's the same, soil's the same. And they looked at whether or not the fair trade joining coffee growers were better off 10 years later. And they actually found at the margin that there wasn't a significant improvement. In fact, the fair trade coffee growers may have been slightly worse off because of the fees that it's difficult to recoup even over a 10 year window or so. Now, you're right, it's difficult to understand if fair trade coffee doesn't deliver on everything that it promises, why coffee growers join in the first place. Part of it is they do reduce a lot of risk because at the end of the coffee growing season, you never know what you'll be able to sell your crop for. If everybody had a great year, then it means that the market price of coffee will be low. So it's one one way to think of it is coffee growers are buying an insurance policy against what the price of coffee might be at the end of the growing season. There's a great book by an economic development economist named Bruce Weidick, and it's called The Taste of Many Mountains. And in The Taste of Many Mountains, Bruce Weidick takes field research that he did with his students, his grad students, and he writes a novel. And in the novel, he includes a lot of the direct conversations that they had in the homes of fair trade coffee growers in Latin America to try to understand much better from their personal perspective why they would sign up for fair trade coffee, given that the results don't seem to be very strong at all. And that's really, really helpful. Victor Klar is an economist at Florida Gulf Coast University. We spoke last month. Please subscribe and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 